to be in Numbers today, the book of Numbers, chapter 21, if you'll be finding that in your Bible. While you're turning that, uh, just uh, heads up an announcement, uh, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, uh, we're going to begin a program, our Wednesday night program for our younger children. So uh, it's a challenge for you sometimes, uh, you younger children, to listen with your parents sitting next to you. Then we're going to make it easier for you. We're going to have a special place for you during that. We're grateful for it. The Bodges are going to be a part of that, David and Michelle. So we're looking forward to that a week from this Wednesday. Numbers chapter 21. This is uh, the nation of Israel is journeying through the barren wilderness, and uh, it's been anything but an enjoyable trip. And if you're familiar with it, they've faced lack, they've faced uh, frustration within themselves, they've faced temptations to want to go back to Egypt. So it's been a, a difficult journey, and we're just going to take one little section of... Uh, this time that they're really seeing their need for God and seeing their tendency to act independently of God. And it's a passage that I've referred to many, many times in preaching. But to my knowledge, I've never really preached primarily from this text. So we're going to look at it together. Numbers chapter 21. If you're able to stand with us, would you stand please as we read the word of God and then we'll pray. And I want to begin reading in verse 4. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. That's a very important phrase, a very revealing principle because when we get discouraged Things, bad things can come out of that discouragement. And they were not just discouraged. The Bible says clearly they were much discouraged because of the way, because of the difficulties, because of the problems, because of the needs, because of where they were in life. They were much discouraged. Verse 5 says, And the people spake against God and against Moses. They're complaining. They're critical. They spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore, this is what their complaint was, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness or in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread, referring to manna, loatheth. We're tired of manna. We've had manna every way you can have it. And we're tired of it. Verse 6, the Lord says, I understand your complaint. No, he didn't. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, 
We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, I have those words underlined in my Bible, any man. If a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today and thank you for the privilege that we have to study it together And I pray for your help, work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, not only to just think about this historic moment, not just be familiar with it, Lord, intellectually, but Lord, help us to learn from it, help us to benefit from it. Lord, I pray today if there be people here who've never looked and been saved, that today they would look to the Savior lifted high upon a tree and trust Him for salvation, forgiveness. I pray to those here today who've found themselves in a bad place spiritually, away from the, the path that you've given, that Lord, today we would know with confidence that Lord, there's forgiveness in a look to the Savior. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated today. This was a great crisis. Any way you look at it, this was a critical moment. As we read a moment ago in verse 6, much people were dying. Many people were dying. These fiery serpents, these snakes were biting the Israelites. Um, I've never been bitten by a snake, um, but I know people who have been snake bitten, literally, But I know a lot of people have been bitten by this serpent of sin, and that's everyone on the planet. Much people are dying. And so the Lord, why did he send these fiery serpents? Why did he send these venomous snakes that would kill those that were bitten? It was a a form of chastisement. God was judging these people. It's clear. God didn't just do this for random reasons. He did it for a specific reason. These people were guilty of sin. And what have they done? What have these people done to deserve this punishment? Verse 5 says, They spake against God and against Moses. They were complaining. They were complaining about God. They were complaining about God's will. They were complaining about Moses because he was God's leader who had led them out of Egypt and into this place in the wilderness. They were they're being very critical. They were discouraged, it says. They were much discouraged, latter part of verse 4, as we emphasized earlier. They were not content with God's provision. We're tired of this manna. We've had fried manna. We've had broiled manna. We've had baked manna. We've had roasted manna. We've had manna souffle. 
were tired of manna. They were not content with God's will. They were, they were discontent. Put, just think about where they were. They were discontent. They were grumbling. They were griping. They were complaining. And the good news is no one's ever been there since, right? Griping and grumbling and complaining and, and not being content with where they were. But that's exactly where they were. God had delivered them from their Egyptian slavery. And by the way, at this point in time, they could have already been in Canaan. They could have already been in the promised land. But they listened to negative reports about the spies that went into the promised land. And where they are now is they're walking in that 40 years of wilderness wanderings because of their unbelief. And yet they're blaming God. They're criticizing Moses. These people were, this was not the only time you'll ever find these people complaining. They were chronic murmurers, chronic complainers. Numbers 11, I quote, When the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And number four, Numbers 14, I quote, All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Number 16, and I quote, All the congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron. This is not just one. This was a lifestyle of complaining. This was a chronic behavior of not being satisfied, of not being uh, uh, welcome to uh, accepting God's will for where they were at this time. And God is judging them for their rebellion. What this is, though, is not just a picture of their rebellion, I believe this is an illustration of sin in general and the devastation that's caused by sin. All sin, any sin, every sin is bad for us. It's not good for us. Again, I remind you what their sin was. It was complaining and murmuring. They weren't guilty of stealing. These people were not guilty of a lifestyle of prostitution or, or gambling or lying or murder or human trafficking. This was not their sin. It was complaining. If we were to be just examine our own hearts and how we feel about things and we were to list a group of sins and we would all agree that certain things are just terrible behavior, terrible sins, but probably we would put murmuring or complaining or griping near the bottom of our list. That's not a big deal. And yet that's the very thing that caused the all-wise, all-knowing, all-holy all God to say, I've had enough of this. We'll see if these fiery serpents can work on them and give them an, 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 a, a, some kind of impetus to change their behavior. By the way, sin is always destructive. Sin always contaminates. Sin, little sins. Sins like complaining and murmuring. Don't sit here today and think, I don't think that matters. It does matter. If it's against God, it's sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is something that is not God's will. 
So let's not be guilty. Let's not make the mistake of saying, oh, I know, I know I tell a little white lie occasionally, or I know that I have a negative attitude sometimes. I complain about God's will sometimes, but that's really not much compared to what other people do. That's a mistake. All sin, whatever it is, is sin. And when it is finished, James said, help me with this, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. He didn't say big sins bring forth dead. Sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There are no good sins. There are no insignificant sins. There are no inconsequential sins. Sin is all sin. I know some sins hurt more than others, but sin hurts others. Sin hurts people. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts our families. Sin hurts our loved ones. Sin hurts those who see us sin. Sin hurts the soul. It hurts the spirit. And it hurts the body. Sin hardens the heart. Sin destroys marriages. Sin hurts relationships. It separates families. It takes our innocence and it substitutes guilt and shame. Sin is deadly. And the whole world has been bitten by sin. And Romans says the wages of sin is what? Death. So as I look at this familiar passage, this very familiar event, I see that this crisis that they were in is not uh, about just only them. It's about all of us. We all have a sin problem. All of us do. Even those of us who are saved still have a sin problem. If we'll be honest, we know we do. We miss the mark. We say things we shouldn't say and we think things we shouldn't think and we go places in our mind or physically we should not Go, and that's all sin, and sin is damaging. You cannot sin if you leave it alone, if you don't deal with it, if you don't confess it and forsake it and find mercy. You can't sin without there being negative consequences of that sin. It hardens our heart. Sin is devastating. So we see this people, they... They were guilty and they had this behavior and they did it over and over and over again. And finally God says, we've got to fix this. And by the way, if you are a child of God and you continue to sin and you think, well, it must be okay. God hadn't dealt with it. No, sin hadn't. He's going to deal with it. If you're his child, he's going to deal with it. And if you're, I'm talking about in this life, you're without chastisement you're not a child of God so these people could have said you know we murmured before and we murmured again and we murmured again and we murmured again and I guess God's okay with our murmuring and finally God said no we're going to deal with this and aren't you glad he does God doesn't let his children live in sin he will not he'll deal with it and so this was a crisis the second thing I see though is their response to that their contrition look in verse 7 much people were dying and it says in verse 7 therefore the people came to Moses and said 
We have sinned. They confessed. They came to Moses. And it's interesting. They've been complaining about Moses. They've been critical of Moses. Now they want Moses to pray for them. They came to the one they'd murmured against. You know, this must have been a humbling thing for them. To be critical, to complain, and to go to the very one you'd complained about and says, would you pray for us? It's a humbling thing. It shows their contrition. And what did they say in verse 7? Just look at it. I have these words highlighted in my Bible. We have sinned. What we've said was wrong. What we've been doing is wrong. We have sinned. They were confessing their sin. They're owning up to their transgression. They said we have sinned. And then they, they didn't just say it in a general way. They specifically identified their sin in verse 7. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. We've spoken against the Lord. We've been wrong. We want to acknowledge our wrongdoing. Don't miss the significance of this. They were guilty of sinning, of murmuring, of complaining, of being discontent. They didn't, and you know, God judged them severely. But they didn't try to sweep it under the rug. They didn't blame it on somebody. They said, we have sinned. That's a great place to be, by the way. If we've sinned, if we've sinned, a great place to be is to be contrite over our sin, to be serious about our sin, to confess our sin. I would think that most people in this room that have been saved for any length of time can identify with where we are in this passage. I know I can. When I've said something I shouldn't have said or done something I shouldn't have done. And by the way, if I did it, but just between me and God, all I have to do is confess it to God. But if I've done it against someone, then I have to go to that person and say I was wrong. Now you may find that easy to do. I've done it a lot. It's still not easy to do. I've had to go to my wife and say I was wrong. But I did that because of what you did. <laughs> Not really. I've had to say I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. Please forgive me. If you've never had to do that, I, I don't know how to relate to that because that's, that's something I've had to do. And I think most people in this room have had. That's exactly, you know, young person, listen. You shouldn't ever be disrespectful to your parents. You shouldn't ever talk back to your mom or dad. But if you have done it, surely God has shown you that it's wrong and surely you know what it is to go to your mother and father in humility and say, I was wrong for saying that. I was wrong for doing that. I shouldn't have behaved that way. I'm sorry, please forgive me. If you can't relate to that, I, I would say well, there's something we need to learn from this lesson. That is, when we've sinned, it's a serious matter. You know why it's a serious matter? Because it breaks our fellowship with God. And it hurts our relationship with other people. If we've not been sincere about something, if we've been hypocritical, if we've 
done things, taken something didn't belong to us. We have to get, make it right. It's, sin is serious. And that's one of the lessons I get from this passage, the seriousness of sin that God wants it to be dealt with. Our flesh is not that way. Our flesh can tolerate sin and excuse sin and blame somebody else for our sin. Our pride doesn't want to admit what we're wrong. I've said this many times in the past. I say it again. If, you're, if you think it's okay to sin and get away with it and it doesn't really matter, that's, you have a serious problem. Sin is serious. And God is looking for this very kind of behavior. God doesn't want us to sin. God does not want us to sin. But when we sin, we ought to own up to it. This is what God wants the writer of Proverbs says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh it shall find mercy. You cover your sin, you won't be blessed. You might say, boy, I got away with this. That's not a good thing. But who confesses and forsakes it, that person will find mercy. James says, confess your faults one to another. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. There's healing and owning up and confessing our sin. That's what repentance looks like. You know, we emphasize repentance sometimes, and we should, that Jesus preached repentance to the lost people and John the Baptist preached repentance to the unsaved and Paul preached repentance. Repentance is a message that ought to be preached to people. You've got to turn from your sin and come to Christ. You've got to repent of your sin and come to Christ. But you don't stop repenting when you get saved. That's only the beginning of repentance. Repentance is a way of life for a child of God. We see we're wrong and we want to make it right. We heard this morning in Sunday school about the fact that we are saints. We are holy. God has made us holy. He separated us unto himself. And holy people want to live holy lives. So when we sin, we want to make it right. We want to make it right with God. We want to make it right with those that we've wronged. It's an attitude of repentance. That's, we've emphasized revival in recent weeks and had a revival meeting this past week and it was such a good meeting but the road to true revival is the road of repentance I've been wrong and they said after they confessed in verse 7 and said we've been wrong they said pray verse 7 pray unto the Lord pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us and Moses prayed for the people. They prayed. They said to Moses, please pray for us. Pray unto the Lord for us. I want to say this because I think it pertains to this, and I think this is what this passage includes. We shouldn't overlook the role of prayer and seeking the Lord and seeing God work. That's not just incidental. Moses did pray for them. You might ask, well, why? Why didn't they just pray for themselves? They probably didn't feel like they were 
in a prayer place, a place where they could pray and get their prayers answered. But they, they knew this about Moses. They complained about him, but they knew he walked with God. And they knew he would seek the Lord for them and pray for them. And I'll tell you, we all, this, it's really a story about sin and a story about repentance, but it's also a story about intercession. He prayed for those that were bitten, those that were dying. And I'll tell you today, as children of God, we ought to pray for those who are in sin, those who are lost, those who are struggling. And if we don't get anything else out of this, it might be good for us just to be reminded that we ought to lift up our voices in prayer for those who are facing the consequences of lives of disobedience. So the first thing we see is the crisis, and it was a great crisis, and then we see their confession and contrition but let's spend the last little bit talking about the cure. Moses prayed, it says in the last part of verse 7, Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. I don't know for sure, but I would assume, I'm kind of guessing that Moses might have been a little bit taken back by that. He wasn't praying for, you know, some piece of ironwork the other way. He was praying for God to take the, take the snakes away. I'm sure he said that. Lord, these people are complaining and he may have said something like this. In my opinion, maybe you just had to let them leave the snakes for a while. But he's prayed that God, he prayed for them to God. And God gave him these instructions. Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. Verse 8. Make this serpent. It says in verse 9 that it was a serpent of brass. Moses made a serpent of brass. He took and made the likeness of these serpents that were biting, biting them, that were, that were these venomous snakes. He made a likeness of it according to God's instruction, and he put it on a pole. He lifted it up on a pole. And he said in verse 8, every one that is bitten, verse 8, when he looketh upon it, shall live. In the last part of verse 9, if a serpent hath bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. When he looked at the serpent of brass, this ser imagine this if you would. You're out there in the desert, these these venomous snakes are biting your loved ones, your friends, your family. You're seeing many people dying. And yet Moses lifted up this serpent of brass. How could there be any, any cure, any antidote in this serpent of brass? It, it was because it was God, really. It was God's plan. God says, if you look to this serpent of brass, then you're going to live. This is going to be your hope. This is your only way out. This is the only healing. If you've been bitten, you're, you have two choices if you've been bitten. You can die or you can look at this brass pole with this serpent on the pole. This is your salvation. And you can go from death to life. You've been bitten. You got, you've been bitten, you can go from death to life. If you refuse to look to the serpent, please hear me, if you refuse to look to the serpent, 
then you're going to die in your sin. That's what he said. You're going to die because of your sin. You know, God didn't have to provide a way of salvation. These people didn't deserve to live. They were sinners. They rebelled against God. They were complaining against their creator. They were complaining against God, rebelling. Because of their sin, they deserved it. But if, even as though they didn't deserve to live, if they look at the brazen serpent, they would live. Now, most people in this room would already know this. But in John chapter 3, Jesus said that this brazen serpent was symbolic of what he would do for us and how forgiveness is found in him. These were the words of Jesus. Think about it. These are the words of Jesus. By the way, those people who may be listening from somewhere who think the Old Testament doesn't really matter, you couldn't be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness as the only way of life, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, he's talking about, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. It's a great promise, isn't it? Just like these people had been bitten by sin and they were on the verge of death, but if they had looked at this brass serpent, imagine what it would have been like in the community that day when all these people are dying, people are mourning and grieving and weeping over their lost loved ones who've died. And they pray, they go to Moses and say, please pray for us and Moses prayed and they may have even seen the, them making this, crafting this brass into a serpent, a likeness of a serpent. They may have seen that and wondered what it's like and he raises it up on a pole and then they started to see people who had been bitten and, and they would look to that and they would be, they wouldn't die anymore. They were alive. They wouldn't die anymore. How much they must have rejoiced in the camp. There's a way for us to be Forgiven. There's a way for our sins to be taken away from us. There's a way for us to be right with God. What a day that must have been. And that's the way it was when Jesus, before he died, he said, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be like that serpent raised up on a pole. Just like Moses made a likeness of those, that serpent that was killing these people, God himself would become like man. And Jesus says the God-man would become sin for us. He would become sin for us. By the way, I say it again just like I said about the Israelites. He didn't have, listen, he didn't have to come and die for us. Jesus didn't have to come and pay the price for us. You know why he did? He did it because of his great love for us. Why did God keep forgiving these people who murmured and complained and griped and were discontent? Why would God forgive them? It wasn't because they deserved it. It was because God loved them. They were his people, the apple of his eye, and God made a way for them to be forgiven. And God loves us. 
I was thinking so much about this this morning when we were thinking about how cherished the old rugged cross. God's great love sent his son to die on the cross for us. And Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. Listen to me. A look to him in faith as your savior, as your substitute, brings not just physical life, but eternal life. I know Jesus is not on the cross. I'm glad he's off the cross. I'm glad he was buried and raised on the third day. But this hymn writer said, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. That's what I see when I see in my mind Jesus at the cross. And you know what? Whosoever believes in him, whosoever, this is not just a message for us, but it is a message for us, but it's a message for all. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish. They put their trust in him. They're going to live forever. You know, there are those who believe that some people, no matter how much they want to be saved, can't be saved because God has predetermined those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. But that's not true. Amen. It says here that everyone that is bitten, everybody's been bitten. Everybody's been bitten. The people you work with, the people we see in the neighborhood, the people we shop with, everyone's been bitten. And everyone that has been bitten, when he looks upon him, shall live. Any man, when he, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he would live. That's the cure. I was thinking this morning, or maybe last night, thinking about this message, and I thought about the testimony of a man that's very familiar to most people who've been saved any length of time, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a preacher in, Ling in uh, London, England in the 1850s. But his testimony of salvation really reinforces or bears witness to this text. He got saved on January the 6th of 1850. This is a couple of things that make his testimony unique. There was a blizzard, a horrible snowstorm in England, and he was only 15 years old, and he could not get to the church that he normally attended because of the snowstorm. And so he went to a little Methodist chapel where he could be here preaching. By the way, think about this young people. Being 15 years old, it's snowing so bad, you as an individual can't get to church, so you find another place to go to church. That says something, doesn't it? When he got to the chapel, the preacher could not even get to church. So there was a layman, a person in the church who was filling in, substituting, and and he read this passage that morning, Isaiah 45, it says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me. According to his testimony, this teenager, Charles Spurgeon, for months had been under the weight of conviction for his sin. 
heavy on his heart. He knew he was lost. He knew he needed to be saved. He had been raised in church. His father was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher. But this substitute preacher, all he could do is just keep saying over and over, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon says that he shouted, a man need not go to college to learn to look. All you've got to do is look. Anyone can look, he said. A child can look. Look unto me and be ye saved. The preacher, this layman, saw Spurgeon sitting. He recognized him as a stranger, saw him sitting and pointed at him and said, Young man, you look very miserable. That describes a lot of people in church, by the way. <laughs> Young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Christ. And Charles Spurgeon says on that day, by faith, he did look. And he put his faith in Christ. And he was converted. One of the great tragedies of religion is how religious groups try to put a lot of responsibilities and duties and works from people's lives and say you've got to do all this stuff if you're going to be saved. That's not taught in the Bible. This is what Jesus said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But whosoever look, looks or believeth on him shall have everlasting life. Every man bitten by the serpent of sin can live. Not just live in life, can live eternally. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, once you're saved, you can never die. Right? I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Yea, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Amen. The moment you look to Jesus in faith and put your trust and confidence in him, you will never die. Your body will die, but you won't die. Every man bitten by sin can look to him. Every person, no matter what they've done, the most horrendous sinner, no matter who it is, no matter what their age is, how long they've sinned, how close they are to eternity. That's what the thief on the cross did. A convicted criminal being executed, a capital offense. He will not come off of that cross alive. But he did the only thing necessary to be saved, he looked to Jesus Christ in faith and he was saved. We don't have to carry the guilt of our sin. You may be sitting here today saying, thinking this is only a message that pertains to lost people and it does pertain to lost people, the unsaved. But it also pertains to those who are saved, who've fallen some way, who've missed the mark, who've turned away from the straight and narrow, you know, you can't change your past. None of us can. We can't undo the wrong that we've done. But I'm telling you today on the authority of the Word of God, if you come to God with a repentant heart and you look to the cross, you look to Jesus Christ, you say, God, I was wrong. 
I've sinned against you. I don't deserve it, but I was wrong. I'm telling you, when you look to him, he forgives you. Because Jesus, whatever our sin is, Jesus already paid for our sin. It's a great passage. And I'm sure there are people here today who are not saved. Not because I know people's heart. I don't know. I'm just, but I'm, I can say with confidence, there are probably people here who've never been saved. There's nothing that God has to do to make your salvation more available than it is right now. He has done it all. The only thing standing between you and eternal life is you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. He is the Savior. Don't look to me. Don't look to this church. Look to Him. That was the message that Spurgeon heard from that lay preacher, look unto me and be you saved. Just look to him and you'll be saved. Aren't you glad of that today? And if you're not saved today, you ought to look to him. It was a, it was a humbling thing, I believe. Doesn't say it, but I think it goes without saying. It was a humbling thing for these complaining, griping, grumbling Israelites to say we were wrong. We confess we were wrong. And sometimes it's a humbling thing. It sort of a, goes against our pride to say, you know, I, don't, I need to be saved. I need salvation. I don't know that I'm going to heaven, but I'm telling you today, it's the best decision you'll ever make. Amen? Amen. I'm going to be standing right here in a few moments. We're going to be have some music and we'll, our heads will be bowed. We're going to be praying. Please, now, don't, don't check out. If you're here today and you don't know for sure you're saved, you ought to, young or old, wherever you're sitting, you ought to slip out and come up here and say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. You know what? Somebody will help you and pray with you. We can't save you, but he wants to save you, and he can save you. And if you're here today and you're struggling with something in your life, as even as a Christian, you say, I've just done this over and over. God would never forgive me. I beg to differ with you today. God is a forgiving God. Just like he forgave these people. He forgives us. You don't have to carry the burden and weight and guilt of that sin. Aren't you glad today? Let's bow our heads together. Today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If any man has been bitten by sin and he'll look to that serpent of brass he will live. That's what we should all want. Life. Abundant life. Eternal life. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask you today. If God has spoken to your heart in some way, let God have his way. 
If you're struggling and confused about salvation, come and let us help you. If you just feel like you need to go spend a moment at the altar and pray and talk to God, do that. Whatever you think God would want you to do. Our Father, we're thankful, Lord, today for this wonderful passage, for this incident in the lives of the Jewish people that we can relate to. God, it gives us hope, it gives us peace, it gives us joy. Not because we've sinned, but because we know that you have provided the payment for our sin. That forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for that. And I pray that today, if there's a person in this room that's struggling right now, today, with some sin, maybe they're not saved. Maybe, Lord, they're just, have made some bad choices. I pray that today they'd look to Jesus.